to the book of Genesis. Uh, we're going to start by reading some passages there. I think we might, uh, uh, we might recognize that there are, uh, among God's people, there are some tr- vital truths that uh, we all agree on, or at least on which we can somewhat unite without reservation. Uh, one of those might be that uh, God is the source of life. Uh, he is, of course, the source of all things. We go to Genesis in the first two chapters and we recognize the biblical description of creation in this book is rather fascinating. Uh, it ought always, uh, to us, both young and old, ought always to draw us to a better appreciation and admiration for God and honor of God to know, uh, to know Him as the Creator and to read these words. The text itself uh, depicts a, a phenomenal transformation. Uh, one that in our natural world is unimaginable, the aspect of going from uh, nothing to something. Not just nothing to something, but nothing to everything. And to recognize that in this particular, uh, in this particular description, there is this aspect of uh, that which is formless and void without shape that's made into that which is vibrant with life. Um, and in those six days, uh, God did a, an unbelievable, phenomenal event uh, in bringing about the world that we live in. And so after creating the planets, the stars of the universe, dividing the light from the day, and uh, the dry land appears, and the massive seas then are made, the the Bible says in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 27, that God began to form life. Read several verses here with me. So God created a man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the history of the heavens and the earth, uh, when they were created in the day the Lord made the earth and the heavens. Before any planet... For any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb in the field was had grown. For the Lord God caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Genesis 1 and 2, then, is a story about life. And that's where I want to begin in our thinking together this morning to talk to you for a few moments about life. God made the earth and heavens, all the physical things we around, around us, to sustain life as a place where life could be and life could remain and sustain itself. He created life as the finishing touch of all the physical creation. Life was everywhere. And yet what we recognize is that when He breathed into nostrils the breath of life and made man He was crowning that event with human life. The creation of human life was the consummation of everything that God did in those six days. Of everything that we see around us is beautiful, as absolutely awesome as it is. This creation of human life 
was ultimately the goal. And God said, when He looked on all of that, He says, it is very good. I mentioned that to us this morning because not only because it's the platform from which we're going to say other things about the value and the honor of life, but because we live in a society today where that particular truth has been undermined and in some places in the minds of generations has been erased. And the heels of the almost universal acceptance of the evolutionary doctrine, on those heels has come the devaluing of human life. Not only as life that's supreme over any other created life, but as life that is most valuable even in the eyes of those, of course, who possess it. And what a tragedy that is for individuals who possess the life that God gives and not value that gift for what it is. To not recognize the honor that God has placed among us by giving us the opportunity to live. And so the story of human life ought to move us. And these accounts ought to move us. Because when we look at human life, we recognize that, as is depicted in the Scriptures, that human life is unique. It is different from other forms of physical life that God created. When God said, let us make man in our image, He was depicting a uniqueness that then is explored throughout the rest of Scripture and becomes the basis on which the redemptive story takes place. That man is just a not another creature. And the life that's within him is not just any life. It is a life that reflects the very image of God. A life that was designed to replicate God himself as an image would reflect the reality. There may be more, more than one element involved in this aspect of what it means to be created in the image of God. But let me suggest a couple of things I think they're inherent within it. The Bible declares that God is a spirit. And human beings have a spiritual component as opposed, I believe, to other forms of life. Just as God, human beings are moral beings. They are rational individuals who can make a distinction between what is right and wrong. Just as God distinguishes between right and wrong. They can activate a will based upon a consciousness of this right and wrong. And therefore they can do things according to an inner moral code that's established through an understanding of what is right and wrong. And all of that reflects God himself. And just as God, humans have an eternal immortal existence. The soul of a person will live on forever, either with God in heaven or without God in hell. But when God created human life, He created for an eternal existence, just as His life is unending. So the biblical evidence is that God placed in human life a quality about Himself that doesn't exist any place else in all of creation. One thing I think that's reflected in this, at least from my understanding of what the Scriptures teach, and I'll point, that, I'll point you in this direction to see how you see it if you see it as well, is that being created in the image of God points to our purpose as human beings. That the book of Genesis and this creative narrative is not just to tell us where we came from, though it marvelously does that, but also to point us in the direction of where we are going or what we are to attain. We, are, we point to the world, the one who created us. An image is made to reflect a reality. And the image itself is not the reality, but the purpose of the image is important because it is to make the one who's looking at it to think of and to contemplate on the image. Someone used the example of the Lincoln Memorial. If you go to Washington, D.C., in this big uh, colonnade building, there is this huge statue of Abraham Lincoln. Now, that's not Abraham Lincoln. That's an image of him. But what's the purpose of making this big statue of Abraham Lincoln, a man that lived generations before? 
So that when you go into that building, you can't even in an, an honorable and a reverent way think about the man himself. So it's an image to reflect upon you see the reality. The point being made then that we are created in the image of God for that very purpose. We are to show the God who created us to the world around us. And in so many ways, God calls us to reflect through the fruits of, the, of His own Spirit in our life, through what we teach and what we do and how we live. We are created for those purposes. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul says, But you must put away all anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. That all those things, the moral code that God places us under, those things that mold character and make us different than the world around us, point in the direction of God, the one who created us. They are not arbitrary. To be created in the image of God is to have purpose. But when God created Adam and Eve in His own image, we recognize that the creative process, though it ended with the formation of those fully developed human beings, the creation process would go on through the natural processes of birth. And so Adam and Eve had children. Their, had, their children had children. And so you and I continue to exist on this planet and life continues to exist through the natural process of birth. In that context of the natural process is the aspect you see that the image of God continues on. It wasn't simply restricted with Adam and Eve. But God continues to create life through the process of natural birth and in that creation is the continuation of this purpose. We compare Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 where God created man in his own image. And then in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 3 it says, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And there's the mentioning again of that image, that Adam was created in the image of God, and yet the image-making continues on in the natural presentation of children. Generation to generation, children are born into this world. And every child that's born into this world has this superior quality of human life that the Bible extols and certainly presents to us. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, Noah is warned by God, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The prohibition against man taking the life of another man is based upon the fact that God created human life as special in his own image. And even as the generations go by and men follow different paths of morality, that particular principle remains intact even today. Even after all the wickedness that was punished by a universal flood, the image of man, a God in man was retained and reemphasized in the covenant with Noah. James chapter 3 and verse 8, James makes this statement centuries later, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The idea that you should not curse your brother or use your mouth to hurt your brother. Why? Because he's made in the image of God. He's made in the likeness of God, just like you are. So the aspect of treating one another with kindness, treating one another with respect, is not a social enigma. It's not something that you and I have come up with ourselves. The call to do that is based upon the sanctity and the honor of human life and flows all the way back to the image of the Creator in all of us. 
In the 8th Psalm, the psalmist said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visited him? For you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is Your name in all the earth. The psalmist can't contain himself when he concludes this aspect that human life is special, human life is unique. It is a gift from God. And God's prerogative was to give it to you and I so that we could reflect upon the image of, reflect the image of God to others. I want to talk a little bit about life. And the sanctity of life in the birth of a child. Life in the womb. I want to say this before I even begin discussing this somewhat uh, very volatile topic in our society. I'm not talking on this subject for the purpose of making a political speech. That's not what this is. And I hope that you'll understand that from the beginning. That I'm not here, and if you've been around and hear me preach and teach very much from this pulpit, you know that I don't use this pulpit as a platform to talk about political issues or to try to influence someone to vote in a certain way, one way or the other. But I'm absolutely convinced, and I think Christians ought to be convinced, that sometimes that which is politicized in our world is really a moral issue and boils down to the aspect of the things that God has revealed. And when I begin to recognize the politics that God wants me to have in my life, I realize as well that the only political statement that belongs in the church of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is king. Amen. That's who we have. We have Jesus as our king. His campaign speech is an empty tomb. His term of office is eternity. And he does not win votes. He changes hearts. That's what we're here to do in talking about this subject is to talk about human life from the standpoint of God's Word. The truth about life in the womb, how can we arrive at that? Well, certain recent legislation in the city of New York and then as well proposed in the state of Virginia has removed all legal protection from unborn children. At least that was what took place in New York and that's what is proposed to take place in, every, in, in, in other states up until the time the child is actually born. When those kind of things happen around us, could any sound-minded individual with a spiritual perspective not take notice of those things and recognize that God's Word says something about that? How does God look on this? Well, I want to get to that. I want to talk about that from the perspective of the Bible. But, you know, there is a scientific view that we could look at from the standpoint of talking to those who have not the biblical perspective, who do not look at Genesis 1 and 2 as the formation and the source of true life today, who have have jettisoned that or are ignorant of it in some way. Back in 1973, when Roe v. Wade became law of the land, there was no such thing as 3D sonograms. Women didn't go before they were born to take a look at the children in their womb. We can do that today to the wonders of science. We can look inside the womb. What do we know about what's happening there? At eight weeks old, eight weeks of a pregnancy, babies are sucking their thumbs. They are responding to sound. There's some evidence even from sonogram that some suggest that babies are even dreaming or that that's what's taking place. At eight weeks, a baby is able to recoil from pain. Needle placed into the womb to draw out blood. We notice that the baby many times when that's done will pull the heel away from the needle. Why? Because it hurts. And so there is the feeling of pain at eight weeks. 
The story out of Europe not too long ago, maybe you saw it in the news, where uh, they, they gave a report, again, scientists, scientists coming up with conclusions that when you take a live lobster and you throw him in a pot of boiling water, that he feels the pain. And when that story came out, there was outrage. Can't do that with lobsters, they can feel. Feeling pain. Where's the outrage? At eight weeks, all the major organs are functioning in this preborn child. The heart is beating, the liver is making blood cells, the kidneys are clearing away fluids, the nervous system is functional and sending signals to the brain, hence the aspect of recoiling from pain. There is even at this small time, this very early time in the development of child, there is a unique fingerprint. You know, you go to to get your license or to get some uh, get security clearance from somewhere. I remember when I started umpiring baseball, uh, because of the school district regulations, I had to be fingerprinted. And one thing I knew, when I put my fingerprint on there and I gave it to them, that was me. They weren't going to confuse that with anybody else. That was my fingerprint alone. It w- it designated a unique individual. At eight weeks old, the child has a fingerprint. At 20 week, 21 weeks old, with just a little help, that child can survive outside the womb. And know this as we think about that, that nearly all of the 1 million abortions performed in the Western world last year and took place after 21 weeks. Scientific evidence of activity in the womb is phenomenal. It's led to legal protection for unborn children, even in criminal law. An assault that causes a miscarriage of a pregnant woman can sometimes bring manslaughter charges against the one who's responsible for not only for the death of the mother but as law would assume the death of the unborn child and our laws then recognize the viability of an individual even before they're brought into the world as the aspect of a unique individual the absurdity of all of that or at least the seeming un Conscionable contradiction of all of that is the woman on the way to the abortion clinic is hit by a careless driver and the child is killed and there's a miscarriage that takes place. Charges result in jail time for the one who caused the wreck for the driver. But if she'd been able to complete her journey to the abortion clinic, she could have rid herself of that life of the child without criminal prosecution if she just made her all made her way all the way there. Because there are places in this country where individuals can go and take the life of unborn children without recrimination, without fault. Well, scientific evidence gives us some insight that even we didn't have a while back. That itself should cause us to pause and to think more clearly that even at a time when we weren't sure, when society was wrangling over the question of when did life begin? Does it begin in conception? Is Is it when the child becomes viable? Is it this week or that week? The scientific evidence provides for us more and more a clearer picture where that question is not so much in view. But even when it was not in view, and where is this aspect we don't know about life, was the proper course to presume that we could take the steps to end what might be a life without moral repercussions. Really, where I really want to go in this, the thing that convinces me is not science, though science is compelling But science changes. What's fascinating to me is that those who stood against abortion in what we'll call the Christian community are those who had a faith in the Bible and saw the Bible as the Word of God who through the centuries have always rejected the idea of abortion did not do that without evidence and support. 
Why is, this, why is abortion or the taking of an unborn child at any stage of the aspect of pregnancy always been opposed from the standpoint of those who stood by the Bible? Because there was biblical evidence that God had provided of what was taking place in the womb of a child. Before the ultrasound and before the sonogram could look in, there was evidence of what was taking place in the womb. And Luke chapter 1 helps us in honoring the place of God's work in the birth of a child. Two cousins, Elizabeth and Mary, have both been given a child by God. Elizabeth seemingly was too old and Mary was a virgin, yet these two women both are going to have babies together. Elizabeth will give birth to John the Baptist. Mary will give birth to Jesus our Savior. And verse 24 tells us that after Elizabeth conceived, she hid herself for five months. Then in verse 26, Luke tells us that in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. So when Mary becomes pregnant, Elizabeth is about 24 weeks along in her pregnancy. Luke chapter 1 and verse 36, it says this, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is, how, this is now the sixth month for her who, is, who, who was called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. That had to be a fascinating revelation, didn't it? For both Elizabeth and Mary. <laughs> with God nothing will be impossible. What will be viewed in the birth of these two children is the activity of God on a very large scale. When Mary gets the news about the coming of her own child, she takes off for Elizabeth's house. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 39, it says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. I want us to consider that text, but I want us to recognize right off the bat, this is not a text on abortion. That's not what this text is telling us. Or at least not what it's dealing with. What this talking about is not the taking of life, but the giving of life. What this text is describing is not the end of a pregnancy, but the fulfillment of a pregnancy. But the text does give us a view of the unborn child, does it not? A view that I conclude has shaped the way that Christians have thought and considered about unborn children from the very beginning. That all along through these generations, this is, these are the types of texts that we can find in God's Word that help Christians to come to an understanding of whether or not an unborn child is really alive at all. And to solve some of the perplexities that come upon us in the social changes that take place. The word itself is important. At least it makes a point. The word translated as babe here, the word brephos, is both verse 41 and verse 44, is not a distinctive word for an unborn child. There's no connotations here of fetus or embryo as though God is trying to describe a child before it comes out of the womb. And the way that we know that is because later on in chapter 2 and verse 16, when it talks about Jesus, it says that they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, Brephos, lying in the manger. So the Holy Spirit describes the child before it's born with the same word that it uses to describe the child after it's born. What stage of development was Jesus in when He was in the manger? The same word describes the reality of life 
This was a living person. What they were in the womb is what they were outside the womb, according to the biblical text. There's also the aspect here of the unborn child being treated in this text as a person. In verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Then in verse 44, Elizabeth interprets this leap. She felt something. And sometimes pregnant women feel things. Something's moving in there. It just got kicked. Moving around. Now that itself ought to cause us to have some pause about what's taking place, but what's interesting here is that what happens in the womb of Elizabeth is described, you see, as a leap. But not just a leap. It's a leap with joy. And the text would seem to indicate that Elizabeth knew this was a leap of joy because she was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit prompted her to the conclusion about what was taking place in her body in relationship to the entrance of Mary into the room. That the baby was leaping. This wasn't just a consequential moving of a fetus. This was the leaping of a joy from a child. It's interesting as well to connect this with what God had said to Zacharias, Elizabeth's husband, back in Luke 2, chapter 1, and verse 14, in the context of making the prediction of the coming of John the Baptist, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. You see, something was going on inside this mother's womb. There was a leaping for joy. There was the presence of a brephos. There was a baby. And so what's being described in this text, surely we can see this, is that a person is in view. Only people can be filled with the Holy Spirit, not animals or tissue or parts of the body. The Bible never describes that. It always describes the Holy Spirit residing in individuals. And the text treats the child in the womb as a person. It feels and it leaps for joy in response to circumstances in which it finds itself, even in the womb of the mother. Let me suggest to you further that what the Bible describes about the birth of a child is that God is at work in the womb. Job 31 and verse 13, Job says, If I have dismissed the case of my male or female servants when they made a complaint against me, what could I do when God stands up to judge? How should I answer Him when He calls me to account? Did not the one who made me in the womb also make them? Did not the same God form us both in the womb? Job contemplates. He contemplating the presence, the, the, the alleged presence of the own sin in his life and why all the suffering was taking place. Maybe I've done something to bring this upon me. And so in making his defense, he says, well, what defense could I give if I've mistreated my slave, my male slave or my female slave, if I've mistreated my slave, what would I say to God when he, gives, when he wants me to give an account for what I've done? He implies that he would stand condemned before God for mistreating a servant. But why? What basis? This man or this woman is his servant. Culture would not tell him so. Society would not blame him for mistreating, even putting to death a servant that was his own property. On what basis could Job make the argument that he would be accountable to God because he mistreated this other person who was his slave? He traces the right the, 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 the activity of God and the judgment of God back to the right of the slave to exist based upon God forming him in the womb. 
The rights of the slave go all the way back to his birth. That the right of the individual is not created by society or government. What Job understands is that the right of the individual comes from the fact that he's created in the image of God and formed in the womb by God. He even stresses an equality between himself. Notice the phenomenal aspect of this in the culture in which Job lived. He stresses an equality between himself and his own slave. Based on what? Based on the fact that society looked at them the same? They put the same value on one life that it did upon another? No way! Job's understanding of the equality of the value of the life of himself and the life of his slave is based upon the fact that God made both of them in the womb equally. It's based upon the fact of creation. So what that would tell me, and I think what it ought to tell us, is that what happens in the womb of a mother as it brings forth birth is not just a natural process of development of some tissue. Oh, it's phenomenal when we look at that way and the scientific approach to that. What the Bible tells us is that God is at work in the womb. He is forming the person in the womb. And when man sticks himself into that process and aborts a baby in the process of being born, he interrupts the work of God Himself. Abortion is not wrong just because it brings about death, but because it brings about the death of human life. And it's assault on God's work. You see, the issue really from the biblical standpoint is not about the woman, the man. It's not even about the child fully. But rather it is about God. In the 139th Psalm, the psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Oh, if we only knew it very well. That God is the one who formed us. So the psalmist declares that God is at work, knitting together His own creation in the womb of a mother to view that sphere of activity as simply the amalgamation of some selves in a natural process can easily and trivially be interrupted. You see, is the very epitome of ignorance and darkness in our world. The Christian knows what's going on in the womb of a mother because God has made it known. We look in there and we see what's taking place. So is choice the issue in this very hot topic? One of the dominant arguments in favor of abortion has always been the child is not a person but rather a part of the woman's body. But when we look at scientifically, we see that 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 doesn't make sense. We look at it biblically and we say, that doesn't make sense. That the aspect that the, that the mother and the child are one and the same, or that they, the, the baby the, before it's born is simply a part of the woman's body. And then following from that is the aspect that no one has a right to tell another person what they can do with their own body, and therefore that includes as well the child. In the first standpoint, we know that the assertion that the baby is simply a part of the woman and not an individual person is false all the way back to the point of conception when God begins the process of forming the child. You know, I think about this in illustration. I give this real quick. But I, often when that particular issue is made, I think about baseball. I think about baseball a lot. I used to, I used to anyway. But the, 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 uh, the rule in baseball is if the ball pitch comes in, hits your bat, bounces off, that's a strike. It hits you, you get your base. Two different rules. And sometimes you see the guy will be holding, the kid will be holding his bat and the ball will come in and they'll hit him on the hands. Or he's holding the bat. Or he'll hit the bat right above his hands and bounce back. And the coach almost always invariably, when that takes place as a difficult call, will come in and say, well, you know, the, 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 the hands are a part of the bat. The bat's a part of the hands. As though the rule would treat them the same. 
And I can remember occasion when they picked up I said, well, you know, the, the bat's part of the hands. I say, okay, uh, I have the boy come over and say, hold the bat. Okay, now let the bat go. It falls to the ground. I said, okay, case closed. If it was a part of his hand, it wouldn't fall to the ground. He let go of it, it fell down. It's not a part of his hand. And that's pretty, pretty simple evidence, isn't it? So when we think about a child, is it just a part of the woman? If a child comes out and exists, if it from the very eight weeks has a fingerprint and all the functionings that take place can take place within the child itself as its own identity, how can we come along in 30 weeks and say, well, that's just a part of the woman's body? Was it ever just a part of the woman's body? Or when it comes out, is it still a part of the woman's body? Second, the notion that one can tell another person what they can do with their body simply false. Society restricts what people do with their body all the time. I can't use my part of my body to punch you in the face. There'll be repercussions of that. So society tells me what I can do with my body. And the Christian recognizes beyond all of this, and I think for Christians this is, this is one of those arguments that seems to me pretty, be pretty clear, that even if I accept that that baby is a part of your body, your body belongs to God. Not you. It belongs to God. You were bought with a price. And that child belongs to God, even if you're going to take the position that it's not a separate individual. What Paul says is we should use our bodies to sacrifice to God. We should use our bodies to help other individuals. We should use our bodies to promote life and not death. It's interesting to me as well that life-saving surgery on infants is pretty common today. But sometimes it takes place when the child is in the womb. Children's Hospital in Philadelphia is becoming well known for such surgeries. Little Juan Sella had a tumor on his heart. His heart at that time was the size of a peanut within the womb of his mother. At 21 weeks, the doctors removed the the tumor with the child still in the womb. And I read the account of that fascinating process by by which they could perform surgery on this little baby inside the mother's womb. And the doctor said something compelling to me in the article. He said there that when they were going through the process, they had to always keep in mind that they had two patients, the mother and the child. There was never in the time when the doctor thought, ah, this is just like removing an appendix. No, he always kept in mind during that intricate fascinating surgery that there was another individual in there on which the procedure was actually taking place. Now what is the consistency in a society where we at one time take all the efforts of our technology and everything that we have to save the life of a child in a womb and then turn around and legislate the the ability of a mother to take that life without any process. The time in which there is absolutely no protection for that child as exists within the womb. That doesn't make sense to me. Not only does it not make sense, not only is it perplexing, but it's tragically sad. Because you and I know human life is unique. Human life is special. Beyond all of that, and certainly in context of all of that, there is the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. What's the answer to the moral dilemmas that exist in our society? Sometimes in ways that confound us. For the Christian is the aspect of the blood of Jesus Christ and the gospel story itself. The real answer to the sins of society, whatever the sins they might be, whether it's the taking of innocent blood, the deception through lying, whatever it might be, the answer to those sins is the blood of Jesus. 
And when it comes down to the aspect of the efficacy of the blood of Jesus, we're all in the same boat. So if you're here and you've felt the effects of making the choice to take the life of your unborn child, if you suffer from the consequence of an abortion, if you're perplexed about what God teaches about that, or what the Bible would teach you about that, or how the conflicts would be, understand that this lesson or anything that we say is an attempt to blame or to put condemnation upon you. Rather to point you to the blood of Jesus Christ. Because therein lies the solution to all of our sins. Those that are magnanimous, those that seem to be publicly arrayed, and those that lie dormant within the hearts of our own lives is the blood of Jesus. Know this. Whatever circumstance you're in, that God loves you. And we hope that you know that about yourself. And that we know about that about every human life that God has ever created. We are all sinners. And the forgiveness that He offers through Jesus Christ is sure for everyone who repents and turns back to that. And you need to be a child of God. Because you need the life that He gives. He's the only one that can provide true life. Will you turn to Him? Can we help you? The goal of the grace of God was revealed to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. And I find it fascinating in a passage we're going to look at later on when we resume our theme in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 10. This is what Paul says. He says that Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you love life, come to God while we stand and while we sing.